This morning as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we have come to one of the most radical things that Jesus ever, ever taught. Certainly the most radical teaching found in his sermon, starting with verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. Here's what Jesus said. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Now, as you can see in these verses, Jesus is commanding, not suggesting, mind you, he is commanding us as his followers to love our enemies. And by enemy, he's referring to those people he mentioned back in verse 22, unbelievers who hate us, ostracize us, insult us, speak evil of us. These are the people that we are commanded to love. Now, I say that this is radical teaching, not only for today, but in ancient times as well, because no religious leader of that time or earlier, no philosopher in Christ's day or earlier was telling their followers to do what Jesus told his followers to do, and that's to love their enemies. In fact, they were telling them just the opposite. The ancient Greek writer Lysias said, I considered it established that one should do harm to one's enemies and be of service to one's friend. Likewise, the Jewish community who lived in Qumran, in the Judean wilderness during the time of Jesus, they taught their followers that they were, and I quote, hate all the sons of darkness. The sons of darkness would be unbelievers. Hate all the sons of darkness. Even the teaching in the ancient world that appears to most closely resemble what Jesus said because it taught people to turn their enemies into their friends was actually far from what the, the Lord taught because Jesus told his followers to love their enemies while they were still their enemy. Not when they became your friends, while they were still your enemy. No, what Jesus said was definitely radical. It was different, it was distinct, it was unusual and not like anything anybody in his day was teaching. And it still is. Nobody's saying this today either, unless they're a Christian. Because it goes against the grain of human nature. Since the last thing we feel like doing to an enemy is showing them love. But that is exactly, folks, what Jesus commands us to do. However, before going any further, as serious students of the Bible, we have to ask questions. We always ask questions. And the basic question we have to ask at this point is, why did Jesus teach something that's so radical? And why did he feel compelled to bring up such a challenging subject in this particular sermon at this particular 
time in his sermon. And the reason that I raise these questions is because if you look at Luke's version of Christ's sermon on the mount, it appears that Jesus just randomly, even impulsively, out of the blue, brought up the subject of loving our enemies. As you'll recall, he opened the sermon with four statements of blessings about the character of true believers. He followed that by four statements of woe judgments about the character of those who are not believers. And then, seemingly, out of nowhere, he just starts telling us to love our enemies. So I ask, why did he do this? And why now? Well, while it might not be apparent why Jesus spoke about loving one's enemies from Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, I remind you that there is another, a fuller version of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel. And it's from Matthew's Gospel that it does become apparent why Jesus said what he said and why he said it at this point. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, you'll see exactly what I mean. In our Lord's sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which is essentially about how citizens of his kingdom are to conduct their lives right now, not in a future kingdom age, but right now, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 20, that the righteousness of citizens of his kingdom, meaning believers, had to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees of his day, those men who were the primary religious leaders of that time. He said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And what Jesus meant by this wasn't that we as believers have to do more righteous looking deeds than the Pharisees did, because that would be next to impossible, since they were painstakingly meticulous about their many religious observances. But what Jesus did mean was that the kind of righteousness that he was looking for in his followers was a righteousness of obedience that came from a heart that loved God, a heart that desired to to please him, a heart that was humble, a heart that was submissive, a a heart that, that had the attitude of obedience that addressed not only proper inner attitudes and motivations, but also proper outward actions. See, this definitely wasn't the kind of righteousness the Pharisees had. Because their righteousness wasn't really righteousness at all. It was a form of legalistic self-righteousness. The Pharisees and the scribes of that day had twisted and perverted many of the laws of God so that they made them say exactly what they wanted them to say in order to fit their sinful lifestyles. This is really no different than what false teachers do today. Instead of submitting themselves to the true righteous standards of Scripture, they reduced God's law to mere outward rules that they knew they could easily keep and thus appear to be holy and righteous in the sight of others. You see, appearances were all these men were really concerned about. It was all theater to them, a religious show, a religious performance, because their attitude wasn't What does God think of my behavior? But rather, does my behavior look godly and spiritual to others? Does it impress others? This is why Jesus said of them 
as he warned his disciples, don't be like them, meaning the Pharisees in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. So he was telling us, telling his disciples, don't be like the Pharisees. So beginning with verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus illustrates the difference between the legalistic, theatrical self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the genuine true righteousness that he wants from his disciples. And he does this by highlighting six specific Old Testament laws. And his purpose in doing this is to reveal the true standard of holiness that God intends for his people to follow, <coughs> excuse me, as opposed to the contrived standards that the, that the Pharisees invented. Now, his approach is exactly the same in explaining each of these laws. Using the formula, you have heard what the ancients were told, meaning what? Meaning this is how this law was interpreted and taught by the ancient Jewish rabbis. But I say to you, meaning that this is the true and accurate interpretation of this law as God originally intended it to be understood. Jesus then proceeded to explain the correct meaning of each of these laws. Laws about murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, and retaliation, and then finally about love. And having addressed five Old Testament laws, Jesus then closes this section of his sermon by focusing on the last law that he is dealing with, the Old Testament law concerning love. And specifically, love towards someone who not only doesn't love you, but someone who actually is quite hostile towards you, someone who hates you, someone who is considered your enemy. Now folks, not only is this a relevant study for us because we all struggle with loving our enemies, but frankly, a study like this can be a very painful experience because it's very convicting. Years ago, C.S. Lewis was publicly criticized and accused of not caring much for the Sermon on the Mount. But here was his response to this criticism which if you've ever studied, especially Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, you no doubt can relate to what C.S. Lewis was saying. He said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring here, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. C.S. Lewis was absolutely right. The Sermon on the Mount is like a sledgehammer that knocks us flat on our face because it just keeps pounding and pounding away at us with some incredibly humbling blows as the Lord convicts us of how sinful we really are in light of God's true standards of righteousness. And it does this by revealing what genuine righteousness looks like, which we so often fall short of. And so this morning, as we begin to unpack what it means to love an enemy, we are going to take some pounding from the Lord. Because loving an enemy is something that just doesn't come easy to any of us. But listen, the very fact that Jesus commands us, not suggests, but commands us to love our enemy should really be an encouragement to everyone who's a true Christian. Why? Because it means that in spite of your struggle 
to do this, by God's strength, you are capable of loving those who hate you. See, it's important to keep in mind that God never commands his people to do anything that he doesn't give us the desire and the ability to do. He will never tell you to do something that you as a believer cannot do. And so unlike non-believers who have no capacity to love their enemies, those of us who know Christ, we do have the God-given capability due to the new nature, the divine nature that God has given us at salvation, as well as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can love those who hate us. Now, in order to explain what it means to love our enemies, Jesus approaches this law, just like he did the previous five Old Testament laws. First, he mentions the false view of love as taught by the ancient rabbis and the Pharisees of that day. And then he gives the truth about what the law really meant regarding loving others. So let's begin by looking, first of all, the false view of love. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now once again, as in all the previous laws mentioned by Jesus, the expression you have heard that it was said was not, I repeat, was not a reference to what the Bible said, but rather it was a reference to what the ancient rabbi said the Bible said. In other words, this is what the typical man on the street had been taught by his religious leaders, but his religious leaders were wrong. That's the point that Jesus is making. And what the typical Jewish man on the street had been taught about love was that the law of Moses instructed him to love his neighbor, but to hate his enemy. Now the obvious question that you and I should be raising at this point is where in the world did the rabbis find this in the Old Testament. Where did the law ever say to hate your enemy? The answer is, it didn't. It didn't. There's no statement given in all the Mosaic law commanding us to hate our enemies. Then, why did the ancient rabbis and the scribes and Pharisees of Christ's day teach this? Well, they based their teaching on one verse, one verse in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 19, verse 18, which states, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now notice the phrase, you shall love your neighbor. This is the phrase that Jesus quoted in his sermon from the teaching of the rabbis. You see, the rabbis focused on this one phrase found in Leviticus 19 verse 18, but they managed to twist and manipulate it so that they forced it to mean something that they wanted it to mean, something that God never intended it to mean. What they did is that they rationalized that in commanding the Jewish people to love their neighbor, God was also commanding them, note this, to hate those who were not their neighbor. And who might that be? Well, since they interpreted their neighbor to mean their fellow Jews, then Gentiles were not their neighbors. And therefore, they were, Gentiles were to be hated. And that's how they ended up 
concluding that the gist of Leviticus 19 verse 18 meant that they were to love Jews and hate non-Jews. Now, if this sounds to you like warped thinking, it is. But let me explain how they managed to come up with this warped, distorted view. The whole issue boiled down to one question. Who exactly is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? The rabbi said that the term neighbor was limited only to a fellow Jew, an Israelite, a kinsman, someone who belongs to my own race, my own religion. And everyone else was considered an enemy. In other words, Jews are my neighbors, non-Jews are my enemies. But they were wrong. They were wrong because although their tradition said that the term neighbor meant only a fellow Jew, the biblical concept of neighbor included those who were Gentiles and even personal enemies. Jesus made this abundantly clear in Luke chapter 10 verse 29 when he was asked this question, and who is my neighbor? He responded by giving the story of what's known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, who, though Jews and Samaritans despised each other, this Samaritan met the need of a severely wounded Jewish man. And in telling this parable, Jesus revealed that our neighbor is anyone, regardless of ethnic differences, anyone who's in need of our help, even our own personal enemies. But that's not how the Pharisees saw it. They reason, since the law says that I am to love my neighbor, meaning my fellow Jews, those who aren't Jewish must be regarded as my enemy, and therefore I am to hate them. Most likely, they justified this hatred of non-Jews by appealing to the time in their past history when God commanded the Israelites to exterminate the pagan Canaanites, and they probably justified their thinking by the imprecatory psalms in which David cursed the enemies of God. So what do we say to them? You see, in doing this, they missed an important truth. Those harsh statements of extermination and cursing, they were expressions of God's judgment upon those who refused to repent of their sin. They have absolutely nothing to do with personal malice by individuals. Here's how one Bible teacher explain the difference between God's judicial statements towards his enemies and the attitude that we are to have towards those who are God's enemies as well as our own personal enemies. He writes, it's one thing to defend the honor and glory of God by seeking the defeat of his detracting enemies, but quite another to hate people personally as our own enemies. Our attitude toward even the worst pagan pagans or heretics is to love them and pray that they will turn to God and be saved. But we also pray that if they do not turn to him, God will judge them and remove them in order to prepare the way for his son Jesus Christ as the rightful ruler of this world. But this wasn't the way the, the Pharisees saw it. They justified their personal animosity and hatred by using statements of of judgment God directed at his enemies to validate, to justify their own wicked attitude. And they were very serious about this, very serious about this hatred of their so-called Gentile enemies. The rabbis taught that it was a Jewish person's biblical obligation, they said, to hate all non-Jews. And secular history records the deep bitterness that existed in the ancient world between Jews and Gentiles. 
Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs, and they didn't mean sweet little puppies that you have in your home. Mangy, vicious animals. They called them dogs. Gentiles responded by despising Jewish people. In fact, it was very common for a Gentile to look the other way when a Jewish person passed him on the street. That's how much they hated each other. So you have this intense animosity between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. And listen, there is even a, a, a saying of the Pharisees that has been discovered that reveals the depth, the profound depth of this hatred that existed in the hearts of the Jewish people towards Gentiles. It reads this way, I quote, If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written, Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. In other words, let him drown. You see him, you see him splashing around, he can't get out of the Mediterranean Sea, he's going to drown, let him drown. That's your biblical right, obligation. Now, that was the thinking, that was the attitude of the Jewish people of our Lord's day towards Gentiles, those they looked upon as their enemy. So, here's the situation. After years of being taught error from their rabbis, error about hating their enemies, Jesus now comes along and in this sermon, he tells his Jewish audience something they had never ever heard before. He tells them, your rabbis have been wrong. The Pharisees are wrong. You've been taught error by your religious leaders. And I'm going to correct what you've been taught by telling you the truth about how to treat an enemy. And so he, he moves from the false view of love as taught by the ancient rabbis and the Pharisees of his day now to the truth about love as taught by the Old Testament and affirmed by Jesus himself. And moving from Matthew's version of the Sermon on the Mount, we now move back to Luke's version of the sermon where we read in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Instead of hating their enemies, as they have been told all of their lives, Jesus commands them to do just the opposite. He tells them that they are to love their enemies, which is exactly what Leviticus 19 verse 18 always meant. He didn't change the law, he just taught the truth. Now this may not strike us with the same force that it struck our Lord's original audience. Because why? Because, well, for over 2,000 years of Christianity, we are somewhat familiar with what the New Testament has to say about love. But as I said earlier, Christ's words must have sounded so radical, so unusual to his Jewish listeners since they had never heard anyone say such startling words, love those who are antagonistic to you rather than hate them, unheard of. And I reiterate that this was unheard of because having been steeped, imagine yourself growing up in that culture, steeped in pharisaical legalism all of your life and then being brainwashed to believe that hatred of Gentiles was justifiable. It was biblically right. It was what honored God. No religious leader had ever told them the truth about loving their enemies until Jesus declares it right here. However, it is one thing to know what Jesus said but it is quite another thing to understand what he meant by what he said. So what did our Lord, our Lord mean by loving those who are hostile towards us? 
Well, a good place to start, always a good place to start, is by defining our terms. So here we have to define what Jesus meant by the word love. It's critical because there are many believers who think it's, it is impossible for them to love their enemies because they just don't have the right feelings necessary to love them. But if you think like this, then you need to understand what the word love actually means. You see, the Greek language, which is a far more expressive and complicated language than the English language, that's the language that the New Testament was written in. And in the Greek language, there are a number of words that we translate, we would translate as love in our English language, but they have very different meanings. For example, there is a Greek word for sexual love. There is a different word for family love, such as the love of a parent for a child. There's even a a different word for friendship love, which is the love of just natural affection. But none of these words, none of these love words were used by the Holy Spirit in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. The specific Greek word that the Holy Spirit directed Luke to use in conveying the truth about loving our enemies is the Greek word, you probably have heard it, it's really well known, agape. Agape, which is the love of action that seeks to meet another person's need. Agape love is is not the love of emotion. It is the love of deliberate, determined action, activity. Agape love means I will do what is best for that person whether I feel like it or not. Whether or not I personally even like that person, I will love them. I will do what's best for the welfare of that individual. Folks, do you realize what a liberating truth this actually is? Because this means that you can still love someone without having strong feelings of affection for them. It's so helpful to know that God isn't calling us to love our enemies in the same way that we love our our family members. We have strong feelings of affection, strong feelings of emotion for family members, and we obviously don't have those same feelings for our enemies, nor do we need to have those same feelings for our enemies. But you can still love them because agape love isn't about feelings, it is about action. I like what one individual said in explaining agape love. He said, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor, act as if you did. In other words, regardless of how you feel towards someone, act as if you had the right feelings. This is precisely the way that God's love has operated towards us, towards you, towards me. It's no different. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, and then verse 10, we read this. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God... God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, God doesn't love you because you're lovable. He doesn't love you because you're likable. His love for you has nothing to do with the way you are. Christ expressed his love in dying for you because it is his nature 
to love, even though you and I were his enemies. God's love isn't determined by the loveliness or the attractiveness that he finds in the object of his love. Otherwise, he would never love us. Never. His love isn't based on on being loved first or he would never love us. We hated him. We didn't love him. The truth of the matter is that his love saw all of the hatred, all of the rebellion, all of the wickedness that was lying in our hearts and he took specific action in order to rescue us from this eternal predicament. And that's the same way, folks, that we are being commanded by Jesus to love our enemies. We are to take action by doing specific things for them that are in their best interest, regardless of our own personal feelings. See, you don't have to like someone who viciously attacked you, either verbally, emotionally, or physically. And you don't have to have warm feelings towards those who have slandered you. And you don't have to be fond of someone who's made life miserable for you. But by God's grace, you can love them. If you understand that love means that you work towards tangibly, concretely helping someone in their need. You see, in loving others, the question for a believer should never be, whom shall I love, but how should I love? Not whom should I love, but how shall I love them? And that's precisely why Jesus, as he continues delivering his sermon, he goes on to give some very practical and very specific ways that we can love those who are personally antagonistic to us. So starting with verse 28, Jesus moves from telling us the truth about loving our enemies to telling us how to love our enemies. How do we do this? How do we apply this? We read verse 27 again. But I say to you, to to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Now once again, looking at this verse, we see this very clear command. There's no question about this command. But notice that Jesus ends this sentence by telling us how to do this, how to love. You're to love your enemies, but here's how to do it. He says that we are to do good to those who hate us. And by good, the Lord simply means anything that benefits someone else. And in this case, that someone else is someone who hates you, someone who is hostile towards you, someone who's your enemy. The Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, when he wrote, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, this command to do good to those who hate us, it is a brief statement, but it is of monumental importance because at the beginning of explaining to us how to love our enemies, Jesus makes it very clear that if we are to obey him in this command, then we must do something tangible for someone who is our enemy, someone who hates us. We must do something positive, something of a concrete nature, something that's good for them, something that actually is beneficial for them. Though your enemy has done harm to you, you are to respond by doing just the opposite. You do good back to them. Let me just tell you something that's so important. It is not enough to simply refrain from retaliating against someone who is your enemy. It's not enough for you to just cease from responding in a hostile way to someone who has hurt you. It's not enough to just avoid them. Well, you know what? They've hurt me, so it's better that I'm not even around them because I don't know what I'll say when I'm around them, so I'm just not going to be around them. Jesus commands us 
to do some good deed to someone who has been hostile towards us, not avoid them. That's important for us to understand because so often when we are hurt by others, and by the way, sometimes it's not just an unbeliever. We can be hurt deeply, sometimes even more from a believer because we expect more from them. But our natural reaction whether it's being hurt from an unbeliever or a believer, at times, as I said, is simply to ignore them, just avoid them. We're just not going to be around them. And we think that's enough. Not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. Jesus commands us to do what we do not feel like doing, and that is we are to look for ways to enhance the welfare of those who have no interest in our welfare. Again, in Romans 12, Paul actually gives us some examples of how to do good to an enemy. He says in verse 20, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. See, the principle is that you are to do whatever it takes to meet some need that your enemy has. That's how you do good to your enemy. Concerning how to put this principle into action, Jay Adams gives this very practical advice in his little book, How to Overcome Evil. Here's what Dr. J. Adams said. How do you do good to an enemy? Here you are required to discover your enemy's need and meet it, if he's hungry, if he's thirsty. The first thing you must do is discover a legitimate need in your enemy's life. The important principle that one must keep in mind in returning good for evil is that the best response is one that meets a pressing need. Remember, you don't have to feel like it to meet an enemy's needs. You do it not because you have whomped up a warm and benevolent feeling toward him, but because God tells you to, and you want to please God. You don't love by feeling, you love by feeding. Love begins with giving. You must give whatever you have in order to meet his need, whatever it is. So planning of your response to evil must include research of your enemy. You must find out his needs. That may take time and effort. You cannot simply guess about his needs. Now, I told you that this was radical teaching. It is. But consider the alternative. What kind of a testimony would we have with unbelievers if we react to their hatred and their cruel actions and words and we react the the same way they did? How would a non-Christian look at Jesus if you as his representative retaliated with vengeance why would a non-christian be interested in hearing what you had to say about jesus if you were to treat that person the same hurtful way that they've treated you instead when you show love to your enemy by meeting his need you show him the power of the gospel to transform your heart your life You reveal the message of the gospel. You reveal the love of Christ because when you were an enemy of Christ, he loved you and he gave his life for you. So if there's someone who has done something to hurt you, unbeliever or believer, then ask the Lord to give you wisdom in doing something good, something kind, something benevolent for them, and then Just do it. Swallow your pride and just do it, regardless of how you feel. This is the kind of obedience that your Lord calls for. But doing good deeds to our enemies, it isn't the only way that Jesus told us to love them. In the very next verse, he tells us that we express love to our enemies, not only by our actions, but also 
by our words. Verse 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now here Jesus tells us how to love those who hurt us by responding properly to them with the words that we speak. He says to those who curse us that we are to bless them. To those who mistreat us, we are to pray for them. Now essentially, not exactly, but essentially Jesus is saying the same thing in this command. He's just using different words to communicate the same basic thought. First he says that if someone curses you, you are to respond by blessing them. So, once again, we have to define our terms. What does it mean to curse someone? And then what does it mean to bless someone? Well, to curse someone in a biblical sense doesn't mean what we think of today with cursing. Jesus isn't talking about using empty, vulgar street language against them as we hear so often in our culture because someone has lost their cool and is venting their, their rage. To curse someone in a biblical sense, and that's the only sense that these Jewish people would have understood. They're not modern people today, they're ancient people. They would have understood that a biblical curse means that you are calling upon God to judge this person. You're calling upon God to judge and send this person to hell for their behavior. It's the equivalent of saying damn you to someone and meaning it because you really want them to be damned to hell for eternity. So as you can see in biblical times, it was a rather serious thing to be cursed at. That's exactly what the early Christians faced from their enemies, especially Jewish believers, Jewish Christians, because they were considered heretics by the unbelieving Jewish community. They were considered apostates, traitors to Judaism, traitors to the God of the Bible. Because of their faith, they were cursed They were vilified, they were ostracized by being put out of their synagogues, which meant you're put out of your synagogue, it means you're no longer considered Jewish, but you're considered now a Gentile pagan doomed to eternal punishment. And I'm sure that what most Jewish Christians in the early church felt like doing when being cursed at for their faith was to retaliate by saying something like, well, I'm not the one who's a heretic, you are. You're the heretic for rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, not me. Therefore, may God strike you for your unbelief and rebellion. I know that's how they had to feel because that's how I would have felt in the same situation. But instead, Jesus said, don't curse those who curse you for your beliefs. Instead, love them by blessing them. So what does it mean to bless someone who curses you? Well, the word bless simply means to speak well of of someone. There's nothing particularly deep here about that. The word means to speak well of someone. In fact, it's from this Greek word that we get our English word eulogy or to eulogize someone, which is to speak well of someone usually at their funeral. But again, we have to think in terms of a first century Jewish person listening to Christ's sermon. How would they understand his command to bless those who would curse them? And the way they would have understood it was not that they were to speak well of them personally in the sense of complimenting them. Let me tell you about all your virtues because they probably couldn't think of too many virtues anyway. It wasn't about complimenting them, but rather to speak well of them to God himself. In other words, Jesus is telling us to pray to God to bless them by saving their souls. That is to say, if they call upon God to do the worst thing to you, which is damn you and send you to hell, 
then you do just the opposite. You call upon God to do the best thing to them, which is to save them and take them to heaven. This is exactly how Jesus himself responded to those who looked upon him as a false, counterfeit, lying Messiah, as well as a blasphemer. While on the cross, he prayed for those who were in the process of murdering him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. And Stephen, the very first martyr in church history, though looked upon by his Jewish peers as a heretic, Stephen blessed his murderers the same way as we read in Acts 7, 60. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. It means he died. These were Stephen's last Words. He asked God to bless those who hated him by forgiving them for this deed, his death. And in essence, he's asking for their salvation. And God wonderfully answered this prayer because in the crowd that day was a young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus who would soon be converted and become the Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary who's ever lived. But in addition to praying for the salvation of someone who hates you, Jesus. Notice he also said that we are to pray for those who mistreat us. So other than pray for the salvation of someone who mistreats you, how else can you pray for those who hate you and do evil things to you? Well, you pray for God to treat them just the opposite of the way they've treated you. Jesus is actually saying just do the opposite throughout this. You pray for God to do good things to them. That's how you pray. To show them his kindness to show them his mercy, to bless their marriage, to bless their income, to bless their children, to bless their grandchildren, to bless their health, and everything else you can think of associated with them. In other words, you pray for God to treat them in a way that they don't deserve to be treated with kindness and mercy. That's how you pray for an enemy. This seems to be exactly what Jesus was referring to, and I say that because just a few verses later, In verse 36, he speaks of God being kind to ungrateful and evil men. However, in Matthew's version of these very same words, Jesus connects God's kindness to evil men with praying for them. And I think that's the point. Here's what we read in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Listen, pray for those who have mistreated you by asking God to bless them. Not only will you be showing your enemy love, but you'll be showing them Christ's mercy that can save their soul. Concerning this command to pray for those who mistreat you, R.C. Sproul said this. He said, if you want to put this into action, try this experience for 30 days. If there's somebody you don't like or someone you don't get along with, be it a co-worker, your boss, or whoever, even if it's your biggest enemy, try praying for them. Try praying for them every single day for 30 days. Some amazing things may happen in your relationship with them or in their life, but you can be sure that things will happen in your heart. So my friends, the next time you are attacked for your faith or someone curses at you or insults you or mistreats you and it may have nothing to do with your faith as a Christian, refrain from doing what your flesh 
would like to do, which is screaming back at them, retaliating, even praying an imprecatory prayer like David prayed that God would judge them. Instead, do what you do not feel like doing. Pray for their salvation. And pray that God would be merciful to this poor, lost, angry, hostile sinner by doing good things for him, things that he doesn't deserve. This may very well be the turning point in them coming to faith in Christ. And I say that because Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Seeing God's kindness in providing earthly blessings for them, that's often what God uses to open the eyes of unbelievers to see their need for his kindness in providing the blessings of salvation. And so having spoken of being mistreated in general by those who hate us, as Jesus continues giving his sermon, he moves on in the next verse where he mentions two very specific ways that we can be mistreated and how we are to respond in love, but that'll have to wait for next week. Contrary to what some of you think, I do have a clock that I look at every, every week. I really do. I'm very conscious of the time. So folks, it is important that we heed our Lord's words. Why? Because he's our Lord. That's what it means. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord if you don't do what I say? If he's your Lord, do what he says. And we have to do what he says about loving our enemies, regardless of how we feel. Even though everything in our flesh, everything in our culture, everything in our society, everything in our world cries for vengeance and retaliation against our enemy, Christ says love them. And Paul in Romans chapter 12 says very plainly that vengeance does not belong to you. It belongs to God. It's out of your realm. It's not in your sphere. Leave it to God. Vengeance is the wrong approach. It is the sinful approach. It's what a Pharisee would do. But Jesus said our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. So deal with your pride and begin to put into practice what you have learned today. Do something good. Pray about it. Research it out. Observe what your enemy needs, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, and do something good for them. And then pray. Pray for the unbeliever who has mistreated you. Pray for their salvation. And then for God to to bless them. And if, if it's a believer, then pray for God to bless them too. And above all, you choose to forgive as you have been forgiven. Now, if you don't know Christ, you don't know him as your savior. This seems very foreign to you. You're not interested in obeying him because he's not your Lord. Then understand this, that God loves you. He loves you regardless of what you've ever done in life, regardless of what you've ever thought, regardless of your behavior, regardless of how you've lived. He loves you. He longs for you to believe on him for salvation. That emptiness in your life, it's because Christ is not there. That lack of joy, that lack of purpose, that lack of real meaning, it's because Christ isn't there, but he can be there. If you'll just repent of your sin, turn from your sin, you know what your sin is. Turn from it and turn to Christ Put your trust in him that his death on the cross was dealing with your sin. Place your trust in him alone for your salvation. He'll change your heart. He'll forgive your sin. And he'll give the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will put it on your credit. Credited to your account. You can't ask for anything more.
If God is speaking to you today and you'd like to talk to one of our pastors about coming to faith in Christ, then I'll ask some of our elders to just stay after and come up and see me as we close the service now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Lord, these are strong words, but these are your words and this is your heart in written form. We thank you for that. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you help us to obey you. We all have enemies. We all have people we don't like. We all have people who have mistreated us, people who have neglected us, people who have said harsh things to us, people who have done vicious things to us. And Lord, our flesh wants to strike back. Our flesh wants to even avoid, give the silent treatment. But you tell us not to listen to our flesh, but to listen to you. So I pray for everyone here, myself included, that you'll help us to obey these precious truths and show the world that we are not Pharisees. We are Christians, transformed by the power of the gospel. And may some of our enemies before long, Lord, may they become, may they become your people, your followers. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.